Welcome to Peer to Peer, the podcast, brought to you by Rainer. Listen in as we hear from top surgeons having great conversations with their peers about hot and popular topics in ophthalmology. In this episode of Peer to Peer, the podcast, Dr. Ben LaHood is joined by Amanda Cardwell-Coronas and Mr. Alon Barsom to discuss how to enhance patient understanding in cataract surgery. Let's dive in. Welcome to another episode of the Peer to Peer podcast brought to you by Rainer and a special episode recorded in collaboration with Ophthalpreneurs. I'm your host, Dr. Ben LaHood. Today, we delve into a subject close to the hearts of ophthalmic surgeons worldwide, patient counselling. Whether you're a seasoned expert or just embarking on your journey in cataract and refractive surgery, I'm joined by Ophthalpreneurs co-founder Amanda Cardwell-Coronas and UK consultant ophthalmologist Mr. Alan Barsom as we explore the importance of patient understanding and address common challenges and strategies for effective patient counselling. So welcome Amanda and Alan, two of my favourite people to listen to when it comes to this type of topic on enhancing the patient experience. Both of you are extremely successful in your fields. Um, so Amanda, can I start with you since this is a special episode around ophthalmopreneurs and the meeting is going to be kicking off in mid-March in Streza in Italy. So uh, just the location alone tempts me to go. Um, can you tell us about Ophthalpreneurs, what it is, why it was set up, why we need another meeting, and what's special about Ophthalpreneurs? First of all, thanks, you know, Ben, and thanks, Rainer, for having me here. And that's really a great question because, honestly, Ophthalpreneurs is still evolving. Um, we've known for a long time that there was a need, but about a year ago, my husband, Francesco, and I really started to put plans together. I've had the opportunity, fortunately, to work with practices all over the world. And even though cultures and customs may differ from place to place, most practices are dealing with the same challenges. You know, we go to typical congresses. There are lots of presentations on technical features, products and you know, of products and procedures, maybe even discussions about medical candidacy. But no one really addresses the soft skills associated with understanding individual patient needs and finding a personal best fit solution. So initially, this was the main objective without thalpreneurs. But then as we began talking with other people and looking back on some of the challenges that we faced when building my husband's practice, we realized that there are many other skills that are essential to private practice that simply are not taught in medical school, nor at any of the major congresses. Things like establishing your niche, defining mission, vision, and values, managing human resources, finance, marketing. And these are not topics specific only to refractive surgeons. They're topics that are relevant to any patient pay practice. So our aim with Ophthalpreneurs is to create a community of private ophthalmology stakeholders, really anyone who touches private ophthalmology, the surgeons, their staff, manufacturers, finance partners, third-party payers, with the intent to address some of those gaps that exist to actually enable growth of the market, creating more patient access to technologies not available in the public health system. So as you mentioned, we kick off our first meeting in Streza, March 14th through 17th, with a jam-packed, really highly interactive agenda. We're super excited about where it's going because the reception from the ophthalmic community has been overwhelmingly positive, um, especially from companies like Rainer who have you know, committed to support it. Oh, that's awesome. You say Streza a lot better than me with my Kiwi accent, so <laughs> I, I respect that. Uh, that's fantastic. Oh, it sounds really exciting. Alan, you're uh, like a hero to me. You've set up 
the, the busy practice, the successful practice in London, um, OCL vision. Uh, I think you pride yourself on your know, quality of care for your patients and, and customized care. Um, well, this episode is all about enhancing that patient experience and counseling of patients. What do you think you do differently? What do you, when you're seeing a patient, do you, do you rate counseling as being an important part of the patient consultation? Yeah, I think I think counselling is absolutely key. I think that surgeons, many surgeons typically underestimate the importance of it um, because the components um, of counselling are sometimes uncomfortable for surgeons to accept. Um, you know, in some ways it's easier to think, well, what's important is what lens am I using or what am I targeting or what is my complication rate with surgery? Um, and those things obviously are really important and very, very key and very critical, but actually it's impossible to select the appropriate intervention for the patient and for the patient to understand and accept what's involved without the counseling process. So, you know, I can't put a figure on it in terms of what is the um, unique selling point, if you like, or what is it, what is it that distinguishes um, what I do or what we do at OCL Vision in our practice, but counseling is a huge part of it and a lot of the expense of how we how patient flow works in the practice with respect to um, optometrists that are doing refractions and initiating the, the history taking the technicians that are doing all of the scans all of that is designed so that when the patient comes in and sits with the surgeon the, the surgeon's primary purpose there is is basically for counseling to find out what, what makes the patient tick do you do the counseling yourself along i mean it's a very time-consuming process i know that I think my happiest patients are the ones where I truly understand what they want and I know them really well. But, you know, we all hear about chair time and trying to reduce that, trying to make our clinics more efficient. Do you yourself do a lot of the counselling yourself? Yeah, I do. Um, and the reason for that is that, to me, counselling is essentially a contract. It's a contract between surgeon and patient. And there's something almost holy about it. It's um, not just about the technological offering and the accurate and safe execution of surgery, which does form part of that contract, by the way, because that is part of their expectation. But it's also, and this is where many surgeons, I think, become uncomfortable and where surgeons like you and myself, I think, have an advantage over some of the, let's say, maybe older fashioned surgeons, um, which is that the other two components of that contract are the psychological and emotional status of that patient which is not always going to be the same. It might not be the same at the time when they have their first consultation to at the post-operative period where they may or may not be experiencing, you know, minor symptoms that might may or may not play on their mind. But the marriage of those three things, the technology, psychology, and the emotion of the patient um, are absolutely critical. And I don't believe it's possible to do that unless you yourself lock eyes with the patient. You know, I look at that patient and they want to know, do I care about them? Am I going to basically be there to give them the outcome that they want and to take care of any issues if they arise? And I need to know what makes them tick. Are they reasonable? Are they the kind of person that is just never going to be happy with anything? Um, what is it that they want to achieve? Are they listening to what I'm saying? And are they taking it on board? And if you don't do those things, then it's absolutely impossible to maximize the chance of patient satisfaction, which is what we're all trying to do. We want to make our patients' lives better. So you can't do that unless you understand what is it that that patient wants or expects? Now, you can have people, I think, help you in the counselling process. 
Um, they can provide additional information afterwards. You know, patients often follow up with other questions afterwards. So it's obviously not only me, but those primary components of counseling, I do myself and always will. I won't, I won't practice medicine unless I'm doing that myself because I just won't know how, to, how am I sure that I'm doing the right thing for this patient. That's actually very refreshing to hear because, you know, uh, we hear so much more about AI, about all these different processes, about cutting out, minimizing surgeon time with the patient. But I completely agree with you. That's how I like to practice and it's how I'll, the only way I'll practice. Um, Amanda, this is probably a really huge question, but you've set up an extremely successful thalamic practice and a very beautiful one. What would you say are sort of the very key elements of effective counseling? You know, similar to what Alan said, uh, when we built our new practice, we we bought the existing building, but we completely gutted it. And we started put by putting the patient in the middle and building the entire journey around the patient. So it was all about how do we provide the best possible patient experience. So from our perspective, when the patient comes in, they're picked up by one of the technicians and they stay with the same technician throughout their entire visit. And it starts with first understanding each patient's specific needs, what frustrations they have with their vision that brought them in, what motivates them to correct their vision. And this starts to give us insight into their personality. Then, of course, they go through their entire you know, ocular assessment to understand the ocular health and what they're an actual candidate for. And we start in our practice with the philosophy that if there were no cost meaning no financial cost and no um, compromises in regards to post-operative vision, that all patients would want the broadest range of vision possible. Therefore, once we know the patient's personality and we know the status of their ocular health, we start our decision tree with the full range of focus lens so we start out at the very top and we downgrade them to give them as much range of vision as possible without exceeding the level of compromise that they're willing to accept. Um, I think that um, the other side of counseling that always concerns me is I sometimes will come across a patient where I think that preoperatively they're quite laid back, they're quite accepting. And it's only postoperatively that you realize uh, they are not coping with the halos from a trifocal at all. And I often think, wouldn't it be nice if there was some simple test of how angry they get at a minor inconvenience? Like, say you, say, you know, asking them a question, like, say you drop some ice cream on your pants and you were going to work, would that really ruin your day? You know, how comfortable are you with a little inconvenience? Have you come across any tools, um, Elon, preoperatively that have sped up that process of, I suppose, of sort of weeding out the ones that are going to take up a lot of hassle with you postoperatively? I mean, there are, you know, the when the patient sees the optometrist, I will often speak to the optometrist before I see the patient. And the optometrist will especially want to come and speak to me if they have any concerns yeah. whatsoever about the psychology of the patient. So the first thing to say is that although it's very important for me to do the counselling, I'm not the only person involved in the interaction with the patient. I suppose there may be questionnaires and things you can do that are some form of psychometric evaluation, but how people perceive themselves in my opinion, is, is often not um, a necessarily accurate measure of how they actually are. Um, whereas when you're with them, you can make that interpretation for yourself. So it's something you kind of pick up via experience. Do I get it right all of the time? Of course not. 
you know, of course I have patients just like you where you think this was, you know, this was the right thing for this patient from what I knew of the time I spent with them. Um, and then afterwards you think, well, actually, and you know, the, the retrospectoscope or the benefit of hindsight is always a great thing when it comes to uh, decision-making. But, but I think the point is that the counseling process is to maximize your chance of success, not guarantee it. Um, it's to maximize it. And if you're achieving, you know, a successful outcome in a very high percentage of patients, then, then you're doing, then you're doing really well for people. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, now, with uh, all the technologies that both of you offer in your practices, you know, it's growing. And that space of heat off multifocal presbyopia correcting lenses is growing rapidly. And I know that we don't take a paternalistic view. We don't tell a patient this is the lens for you. But do you, do you limit the number of different lens options which you will tell people about? Amanda, do you, do you sort of tell them about categories or do you tell them about specific products? So we actually never talk about brand at all. And we don't actually present them with a wide range of options. There's plenty of data out there that shows the more options that a patient has available, the more afraid they become of taking the wrong decision and they may default to you know, the, the, the least risky option. So what we do instead is we start at the full range of focus lenses and we downgrade based on the conversation that the surgeon has with the patient. So um, once they decide, okay, here's kind of your maximum level of willingness to compromise, what lens is going to give you closest to what it is that you want without exceeding that level? And then the recommendation is made specifically for that. Now, I will say being based in Italy, where we have a pure private or pure public um, uh, healthcare reimbursement system, the patients who walk into our practice already know that they're paying for that procedure. So they're coming in wanting the most vision that they can get for the money that they're going to pay. So that's that's a very important uh, uh, difference to, to state because in other markets where there are public and private patients going into the same practice, it's a different patient flow and a different conversation that may need to take place. Raina, I'm sorry that Amanda doesn't mention brands. I, I still wear your socks for every operating list. <laughs> Alon, do you pick certain lenses that you've become comfortable with and you counsel patients specifically on those? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually agree with um, what Amanda just said, that, that if you present patients with a choice, um, there are several problems with that. One is, as she's mentioned, there's decision paralysis. So they just think, oh, this is my choice. Uh, but the other is that I think we need to be aware of what it is we're doing as, you know, a surgical practice, um, which is that we are experts that are responsible for providing patients with what it is that they want. And what they want is not a choice of 10 things, like as though you're buying a car. Um, and I sometimes use the analogy of like, let's say if you've got a bit needed open heart surgery or some valve replacement, you would never expect your cardiologist to say, well, there are these four different kinds of valve. Um, there's this one and there's that one. And what do you think? You'd be like, well, you're you're the cardiothoracic surgeon. I need a valve replacement. Give me the best valve that is what you what's needed for my physical system. And I think because there's a purchase decision in the optical world, let's say, with respect to compact lenses and glasses, which is so different because it's not permanent. You know, if you don't like those glasses, you can just switch them. Or if you don't like those contralenses, you can just switch them, right? What we're doing here is permanent surgery in, in the most part. So giving people the choice is just, in my opinion, not professional and not 
um, not helpful um, and also not appropriate. Having said all of that, there's always the challenge because they come with different amounts of information and some of them expect to be given a choice. And we, I will sometimes discuss a couple of options to them so that they know what the thinking is. So the logic is, you know, this is what I think is going to be best for you. And this is why I think it's going to be best. But that's not the same as saying you've got option A and you've got option B and then leaving it with them. It's a very different way of approaching it. Yeah, I think that's so true. I think that as a doctor, it's silly to expect a patient to come in and, and ask them what they think about their opinion. You can interpret what they want, but ultimately you are the one that will know what that lens is capable of doing. Um, Alan, for your patients that are coming in thinking about presbyopia correction, when you're counselling them for either a trifocal or a lens like the Ray-1 EMV, do you consciously think of different counselling techniques depending on which direction you're wanting to push them in, perhaps, or you sort of recommend? Not necessarily between those two options, but I do let them know what they would not be gaining if they were to just have a standard monofocal or a monofocal toric lens, because I think that that's important that they understand that. Um, it's important to also remember that patients with cataract and patients having lens exchange, patients having intraocular lenses, their natural lens in their eye is not always doing nothing. So if you give them just a monofocal or a monofocal toric lens, they might, even if they're not myopic, they might lose some of the natural range or the natural zoom of vision. So in many cases and in many circumstances, my feeling is that the kind of vision they would get with a lens like the Ray-1 EMV or the Ray-1 EMV toric would actually be more natural vision for many patients in terms of the fact that it's giving them distance vision and intermediate vision or social reading vision. Um, I will speak about the Ray-1 trifocal or the Ray-1 EMV um, depending on what their needs are. So if they say, look, I don't want to wear glasses for anything at all, um, and I like to read a lot, and I like to hold things really close, you know, then you, you do have to look at like the likelihood that you're going to achieve total spectacle independence, which is highest with a trifocal lens. Then I will speak to them about um, trifocal lenses and what's involved in that, that time point. But it's all, you know, it's all very much driven by um, what they want to achieve and what their expectations are. Um, and, you know, you do have patients, not many, but you do have some patients who really happy wearing glasses and really love wearing glasses and want to continue wearing glasses. Um, Amanda, do you come across the situation where you've discussed lenses with a patient? Uh, they're probably maybe a little bit keen on, say, a trifocal lens, um, but you think, oh, no, no, this is not, this is not a good choice for this person. Um, I'm not sure what it's like in Italy, but I think that in Australia, that's a difficult conversation to have. To someone knows that a technology exists, and you have to explain maybe a, a relatively technical situation. You know, maybe uh, you're worried about their macular health or a corneal issue or something, or even just personality. How do you handle those sort of difficult conversations in your practice? Well, I think the first thing is you have to put yourself in the shoes of the patient. So they're nervous. They're coming from a place of fear anyway. But we know that the fear of losing vision is one of the most common fears across all, all cultures. Reassuring them that they will be okay and we want what's, the, what's best for them. And then helping them to understand, you, yes, this is available. But if we use this particular type of lens in your eye, this is what you would experience. And this is what we don't want you to have to live with, which is why we're suggesting an alternative that's going to give you the best possible vision based on your specific situation. 
And Elon, moving to the post-operative period, counselling doesn't stop pre-operatively. You continue to talk people through their process post-operatively. They trust you. Um, do you think that you can counsel an unhappy post-operative patient to being happy? Yeah, I mean, I think that that relationship between the surgeon and the patient that, you know, I say is like the contract of counselling, if you like, between the psychology, the emotion and the technological aspects, that will invariably change after surgery and what we all want is for that to change in a way where that is strengthened and reinforced because their expectations have been exceeded and they think this is incredible you know I was looking forward to this before and I thought it was going to be good but I never expected it to be like this clearly that's not how all patients feel about things and sometimes the road is a bit bumpy sometimes they even minor things like the eyes are a little bit dry for a few weeks afterwards to them can seem like a total disaster you know they're they don't know what we know, right? So we know that their eyes are going to be dry for a few weeks and they might take some drops or, you know, do some treatment for that. And then they're fine after a couple of weeks. But they are worried that they may have these symptoms forever. And it's been put there by the surgeon who hasn't done the surgery correctly. You know, they their fear is not going to make them have necessarily a rational response to the situation. And um, so that for, for absolutely that reason, the counselling has to um, continue after. And, and I guess for like purely pra practical purposes, we, you know, we in our practice at OCL Vision, we do rely on our optometric team, at least for initiating that process with the patient. If it's not a straightforward thing that can easily be um, dealt with and the patient is not accepting, obviously, then they are put through to us for some of that post-operative care. But it's just not practically possible with the volumes that we're doing individually as surgeons to be seeing every single patient afterwards, even for every mild issue. So we do rely on the optometric team to kind of help us with that. So that's more of a team effort, I would say. Um, but still, no, nonetheless, very important. Um, and they need to feel that they were well looked after afterwards, that they were listened to. Some of their anxieties might be purely emotional. They might be nothing to do with what's going on with their vision. Um, so sometimes they even have life events and you think, well, you really don't seem the same as you were a few months ago. What's been going on? We have a role beyond just being the surgeon, um, which I think makes what we do very challenging, but also very beautiful. You know, that's, it's incredible to have that interaction with patients. So I, I kind of try and remind myself to be grateful for it, even when it's hard. Yeah, I think it's important to occasionally bask in the glory of a good outcome. You know, it's uh, that's quite it. nice to see those patients and accept that, thanks. Um, along with the um, collecting data from patients after the surgery, and uh, I, I'm a big fan of the idea that you can't really improve your outcomes without knowing your outcomes. Uh, I understand that you collect patient-reported outcomes as well on your cases. So can you tell us a bit more about how that's working with OCL Vision and, and what you're doing with patient-reported outcomes? Yeah, I mean, I think patient-reported outcomes are really key. And I think as more and more technologies come into the market that are, let's say, not similar, but where it might be difficult for surgeons to know what's really best for their patients and what kind of patients, it becomes more and more important. And although there is clearly that, important relationship between the surgeon and the patient there are many other components that need to be taken into account and i think that those will probably become automated at some point in the future by artificial intelligence keratometry values and axial length values and um, certain characteristics in terms of refraction and there are possibilities to refine the choice for satisfaction but you then have to know are you achieving satisfaction and you have to try and know are you achieving satisfaction in a quantifiable way in a validated way, in a measurable way, um, and be able to compare different interventions for that purpose. So we started using RayPro, I want to say about eight months ago, and it's been really enlightening 
um, to see on essentially what is a big data set because we're doing a lot of surgery, you know, how different lenses compare um, and, you know, how what we're achieving in terms of patient satisfaction. All of our patients having um, certain kinds of intraocular lenses where we want to look at what the differences are and what the outcomes are, we'll have a RayPro questionnaire email to them and uh, and we can then look at it, look and interpret those results. It gives us very useful information. And I understand that with RayPro, you can collect data on not just Rayner lenses. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, Rayner, are, I, I think, have been very gracious with this. They kind of see themselves as having a role to further what's happening in intraocular surgery or refractive surgery in general. It's not just for their own purposes and their own benefits. And they, they kind of, I think, also have faith in some of their products. The Ray1 EMV in particular stands up very strongly against many of the competitive products. So at this time point, I think it's helpful and opportune for them to say, look, you know what, guys, have a look and see what you think. Um, yeah. And the you know the outcomes and satisfaction levels have been, have been very high on account of that. But also you have to see it to believe it. And sometimes surgeons get put off because they they do like five bilateral lenses on patients and one of them happens to not be happy and then they think, well, this must be a bad lens. But actually, if they were to do 100, they may still end up with only one patient unhappy because it's not statistical or scientific to base what you do on on one outcome. But if you're looking at it over hundreds of eyes treated or hundreds of patients, then it becomes much more meaningful. So RayPro gives that power. Oh, that's awesome. That's a pretty cool new tool. Um, Amanda, you're pretty um, up to date with the latest technology. I know that your practice is very modern. Are there any new um, counseling techniques that you think surgeons should be knowing about? You know, anything that you'd recommend them using via social media, um, AI, virtual reality? Is anything sort of new and innovative in the space? You know, the thing that I see probably the most right now is this huge shift between traditional key opinion leaders and more of a, a new wave of digital opinion leaders. The phrase that I've heard them referred to as, you know, Ben, you're one of those, I do believe. I think that by reaching out and creating awareness on social media and obviously tailoring that approach to the various different platforms is a great way of creating awareness of different options and different techniques that are available to patients depending on specific needs. I was going to wrap up. Um, but is there anything that either of you would like me to ask you that we haven't asked? Or is there anything you'd like to talk about that I haven't discussed? No, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I thought they were very relevant questions and it's a really super relevant topic. So I, I kind of, I've been involved in a few podcasts before, but I would say this is going to be, this should be like a must listen to for for other surgeons and certainly surgeons that want to try and grow their kind of advanced technology offering in their practice. I think that, that we've covered a lot of points and um, and a lot of things that, don't always get said, but need to be. So yeah, thank you for allowing me to be involved. I really enjoyed it. Completely agree. This has been a great, great conversation and I'm very happy to have been a part of it and would love to continue the conversation in the future. Thank you very much to my wonderful guests today, Mr. Alan Barson and Amanda Cardwell-Coronas for chatting with me. I've definitely learned a few things about elevating patient care and thinking about the counseling experience for my own patients. Elon shared his experience uh, with Ray Pro, which allows us to easily gather patient-reported outcomes from our patients. And as I always say, you can't improve your outcomes without knowing your outcomes. Amanda, thank you for sharing your wealth of experience and for hopefully introducing people to Opthalpreneurs. The meeting is easy to find on social media and also online. You can register at opthalpreneurs2024.com. Please do check it out. 
Thank you again, everyone, for joining me for another great peer-to-peer podcast. I'll see you all again soon. Thank you. Thanks. For more information about this episode's topic and to read the show notes, visit the Peer-to-Peer Hub at rainer.com forward slash peer-to-peer. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, please subscribe to our channel to be notified of new episodes. This podcast is provided for general information purposes only. The presenter's views are their own. Rayner does not endorse off-label use. Users must refer to the product labelling and instructions for use for Rayner products in all cases. Not all Rayner products are available in all countries. The full disclaimer can be found in the show notes.